Well, this section of Romans we've been looking at, flick back through it, chapter 14 and chapter 15, this little segment we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks, has all been about the importance of unity in the church family. Uh, And please remember, when I talk about the church family, it's talking about the local church. It's talking about us who meet here at 7pm on a Sunday night. That's the church. It's not some denomination or or organisation. The church is this group of people here. And it's been talking about the importance of unity. Maintain unity in your church family has been the constant theme uh, of these chapters. He's been saying, don't let disputable matters divide you. Uh, Don't let those things that Christians can disagree on cause division amongst you. Hold strongly to sound doctrine, but hold loosely to opinions, is a summary, if you like, of what we've been seeing so far. Maintain unity in the people of God. And that theme just flows on into today's passage in chapter 15 which really just picks up where we left off last week. So look with me at verse 1 of our passage, and this is what he says. He says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. So this is summing up all that he's been saying and talking about in chapter 14. And you remember what the issue was, this division that was a part of the early church. And it wasn't just the church in Rome. You see it all through the New Testament, where the strong in faith were judging the weak in faith. And the weak in faith were condemning the strong in faith. That's been this constant issue. And the issues there were to do with keeping or not keeping the Old Testament food laws in particular. Some of the Christians, especially those from a Jewish background, they just couldn't get their heads around the fact that they were now free to eat anything. You know, they had grown up saying, God said you could only eat certain foods, but now they're told Jesus tells us you can eat anything. All foods are clean. They couldn't get their heads around that. Other people who were more mature, the stronger in faith, they understood all foods are clean for a follower of Jesus. But Paul says to them, And if you like, this is sort of the principle of chapter 14. Paul says to them, just because you're free to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because you're free to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. So Paul says to the strong in faith, and I keep coming back to these graphic examples, and I'm sorry if you, like me, haven't had dinner already tonight, but Paul says to the strong in faith, you know it's okay for you to eat that prawn thing wrapped up in bacon you know, and fried in fat, you know, that sort of thing. He says, you know that's fine, but if there's someone in the church who struggles with that and you eating it causes them to think, am I doing the wrong thing? Maybe I'm sinning. If there's someone in that situation, well, what is it to you to say, I won't have the bacon wrap, I'll have a vegetarian wrap instead? What's it to you, he says? If that helps your Christian brother or sister, why wouldn't you give up your rights? Why wouldn't you give up your freedoms if that's best for them? Now, at this point, I just want to pause and make sure we've got this right. Because in my experience, I've noticed uh, that modern Christians actually often get this all round the wrong way and think they're applying this passage when they're not. Uh, And I've noticed this in in our discussions after church and as I've uh, poked my head into a few of the different small groups, as we've sort of battled really hard to work out how to apply this today, I've noticed some people getting it around the wrong way. So I just want to make it very, very clear. See, we tend to think that the strong in faith is the more religious person. 
So we think the strong in faith is the person who's more religious and then we tend to assume they are judging the weak in faith who are engaging in what we would call sort of more worldly behaviour. But no, the stronger Christian is the less religious person. Do you see that? See, they are the person who understands I am saved by faith alone. So I don't have to keep all these religious laws to be a Christian. That's the strong in faith. The weaker Christian is the more religious person. See, they're caught up on lots of things they don't need to be caught up on. So today, you might meet a person who is weaker in faith and they might say, I mustn't eat red meat on Friday. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't eat red meat on Friday. But they think, I've got to eat fish on Friday. That is someone who's weaker in faith because they're, they're, they're not understanding their freedoms in the gospel. I mustn't go to the shops on the Sabbath. I have to wear a hat to church. You know, no one obviously struggles with that here. I haven't seen one lately. But you see, that they want their religious traditions. And so the call of these chapters is on the stronger Christian to give up their freedoms for the sake of the gospel. Don't eat red meat even though you're free to, if a brother struggles with it. Don't go to the shops on Sunday, even though you really need milk and you haven't got any in the house, even though you're free to, if there's a sister who struggles with it. Don't demand your right to drink a glass of wine, even though you're free to, if others struggle with it. And what's it to you if you have to wear a hat to church, if people in this particular church think that's something that you need to do? See, that's the point of these chapters. Be willing to be more religious than you have to be. Be willing to be more restricted than you know you have to be. Be willing to do that for the sake of not causing offence to a Christian brother or sister. But as I said, sometimes people misunderstand these chapters and I've heard these ideas as people have been working hard at trying to apply it today. People use these chapters to say, if I want to live how I want to live, don't judge me. I claim to be a Christian, but I want to make ungodly decisions. I claim to be a Christian, but I want to make unwise decisions. You know, I want to drink to excess. Uh, I want to stop meeting with other believers or whatever it is. And then they say, you shouldn't challenge me. You, You shouldn't question me. Sadly, many modern Christians have heard what I might call Romans 1 to 4. They've heard we're saved by faith and freed from sin, but they haven't heard and understood. They haven't read on to Romans 5 to 8 to understand that we've been freed from sin to now live for Christ and to live for him and to serve him and give our lives in his service. So these chapters are about being willing to give up your freedoms for the sake of the good of others. They're not about how some people take them. They're not about demanding greater freedoms than God's word allows, than godliness demands. It's about being willing to be more religious and more constrained for the good of others, not about demanding my right to be less constrained and less godly even than God's word demands. Do I understand that? It's very important we get that. And so he's reiterating that here, look at verse 1 again. He says, Now we who are strong in faith have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. We have an obligation to give up our rights and our freedoms to stop a weaker sister or brother from stumbling. But then now, at this point, he goes broader. He goes to the key principle behind it. And the key principle is, stop living 
to please yourself and instead live to please others. That guy goes past every Sunday night, doesn't he? Just at this point in my sermon. There you go. The key principle is stop living to please myself and start living to please other people. So look at verse 1 again. He says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. There in those two verses, there is everything we need to know to be a godly member of a church. In those two verses, if you want to work out how you can be the most godly member of your youth group or the most godly member of this congregation or the most godly member of your small group during the work, hear it all this. Live to please others, not yourself. Do what is best for others to build them up for their good, not to please ourselves. Now, shouldn't that be obvious? Really, shouldn't it be obvious? I mean, if we think about it, what is the essence of sin? What is the heart of sin? The essence of sin is we say, I am the most important person in the world, living to please myself, looking out for number one. That is the heart of sin. Why is our world in such a mess? Because people everywhere demand my rights and my freedoms rather than my obligations to others. See, we live to please ourselves and that is the root cause of any relationship breakdown, whether it's within a family, whether it's within a community or whether it comes down to wars between nations. It's always the same root cause. When I demand what I want and you demand what you want, what is the only possible outcome? Conflict, discord, breakdown. But we, the body of Christ, should be different. And remember what I said at the start, when I say we, the body of Christ, I'm talking about this group of people gathered here in this building now. I'm not talking about some thing called the church. I'm not talking about some sort of out there body where you can just sort of make it distant and mean other people have to worry about it. This is saying we, this group of people who meets every Sunday at 7pm, we should be different because we put others first, even if my needs are not met. Even if I want, never ha- what I want never happens. Even if I have to give up my rights. That's what it is to be a Christian. Now understand, this is not saying, do whatever else the other person wants. The key phrase there is, look at it again, please his neighbour for his good, to build him up. Do you see that? Turn and look at the person next to you. Now. Sorry to make you uncomfortable at this point, but turn and look at the person next to you. Don't talk to them, just look at them. What is for their good? What is for their good? In certain out there circumstances, it might be that they need a bed to sleep on tonight. That might be their their greatest good at the moment. Or they need a meal to fill their tummy. But, But on the whole, what is their greatest good? Their greatest good is that they might know Jesus Christ and continue to trust in him, isn't it? Is there any greater good than that? It's to continue to trust in Christ. It's to grow in their love and knowledge of him. That is the greatest good. Look at them again. What builds that person up? 
What can you do to bring about that greatest good for that person? It's sharing the word of God with them, isn't it? Is there anything better that we can do for a person than allow them to hear the word of God? It's your encouragement, it's your support to live by faith. And so why would we do something? This is the point of this passage. Why would we do something that might stop that happening for them? And so his point is, we have to stop caring about what we would prefer and what we would like if it would cause a problem for someone else, if it would stop someone else hearing the word of God, trusting in it and growing in it. So as we keep coming back to, you know, Troy's picture of the pork chop last week, I know I'm free to eat that juicy pork chop that he had up on the screen. But if my doing that is going to stop a recent convert from a religious background, if it's going to put a stumbling block in their way and stop them listening to the word of God and stop them being built up, if my doing that is going to do that, I will eat Brussels sprouts every day. And I hate Brussels sprouts. See, but that's the point. We do not stand on our rights. We give up our rights. We give up our freedoms. We do what we don't want to do if that is good for the other person. Going beyond that, let's think about the things that divide modern fellowships. What are some of the things that you've seen divide churches? One really common thing, sadly, is music. You know, I might prefer old hymns played on an organ. That might be what I'd prefer. But I know others prefer guitars and more modern songs and all that sort of stuff. And they're really hung up on it. So what do I do? I give up my rights. I give up my preferences so that the weaker brother, the person who's got an issue with it, they can be built up. I might rather that we had a really traditional style of service, you know, with a prayer book rather than a PowerPoint and all that sort of thing. But I know that others have a real issue with that. And it would be a hindrance to them being a part of our fellowship and hearing the word of God. So I give up my rights. I give up my preferences so that they can be built up. See, because these are not issues of godliness. They're not issues of sound doctrine. If they were, we should stand up on them. I hope you see that. But on other matters, who cares? That's what this passage is saying. Who cares? See, in the end, the really mature Christian says, the really mature Christian says, I care about whether you love Jesus. That's what I care about. I care about whether you trust in him alone for your salvation. I care about you continuing to live by God's word. And I will encourage you and I will challenge you and sometimes I'll even rebuke you to help you live for Jesus. But on things that don't matter, the mature Christian says, well, who cares whether we have an organ or a guitar? Really, who cares? Who cares whether we have a prayer prayer book or a PowerPoint? Who cares whether we eat a steak or a falafel? Who cares what building we meet in? You see, who cares? I will give up what I want. I'll give it up. I'll give up what pleases me for the good of my brother or sister in Christ. You know when you come to a doorway and you come there at the same time as another person and you you say, no, after you, and then they say, no, after you, and you end up doing that little dance where you say, oh, okay, and then you go and they go, oh, no, no, after you, and then, oh, no, 
if you, am I the only person who has this issue? There's at least one other person, the person who I come to the doorway with. You know that little dance? That's what being a part of a church should be like. We're just constantly doing that little dance. It means we never get anything done. It's not as bad as that. But you know the point I'm making. That's what the church would be like. No, no, no. I insist we do it in a way that helps you. No, no, no. I don't stand on my rights. You, you first. You, we have it the way that suits you. You see, because we're all eager to please the other rather than demand what we want. But why? Why would we do that? Well, it's very, very simple. It's what Jesus did. And what is good enough for our Lord should be more than good enough for us. Look at verse 3. He says, For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. One commentator I read during the week said, Paul is using a doctrinal sledgehammer to crack a behavioural nut with that verse. And it feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, who could ever compare Jesus' sacrifice for us to us giving up our right to eat a steak on Friday? So Jesus, who even though he is in very nature God, was willing to humble, humble himself and not just become a person, but actually come and serve us. And he was willing to be cursed and he was willing to be insulted and he was willing to be spat upon all for us, and more than that, he was willing to die in our place. Our Lord is the example of living to please others and not himself. He even died for the good of others. So how could we compare that to us giving up our right to eat a certain meat? Or to us giving up our right to have the style of music that we prefer? Or to us giving up our right to have the style of service that we prefer? You see, how could we ever compare us giving up our freedoms for the good of others to Jesus' sacrifice for the good of others? But isn't that his point? See, his point is, if Jesus was willing to give up everything for the good of others, if Jesus was willing to sacrifice even his life for me and for you and for our good, how on earth could we ever stand on our rights? and demand that everything happen our way rather than give them up for the good of others. See, Jesus' death puts it all into perspective, doesn't it? And it makes us realise how selfish we can be. It's wonderful when you see people getting this. My most exciting time is when I see people in our congregation here getting this. When you see people shed that consumer attitude to church that sadly... It is the main attitude Christians in the modern world seem to have. Where I go to church when I feel like it, when I go to church to meet my needs and where I shop around to find the church that best fits in with me and the way I like it. And it changes that to this attitude of, no, 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 I go to church to love others. That's why I go. I go to church to serve others for the good of others. See, but it's only when we grasp the wonder of Jesus and his attitude and his sacrifice for us, it's only when we grasp that that we get that attitude ourselves towards others. See, because our world just conditions us to be selfish. It's the air we breathe. So we need Jesus to show us how to be selfless rather than selfish. And do you know the strange irony of it is? When we get this, when people do get this, 
they actually stop caring about all those other things. They stop caring about all those things that we used to be hung up on because who cares? Who cares about all those things that divide us? Who cares about those things that I used to think I really wanted and were so important to me? Because all I care about is whether these other people sitting around me are growing. That's all I care about. All I care about is that I do not put any stumbling blocks in front of them to stop them trusting in Jesus and to stop them growing in their faith. And that sounds wonderful, but it is so hard. It is so hard to do. Because we are hardwired to demand our rights and we are hardwired to demand our freedoms. So God knows we need help, which is why he now turns to the helps he gives us. And they're no surprise. It's the word of God and it's prayer. If you look back at verse 3, look back there again. He quotes Psalm 69 there because it talks about the suffering Jesus faced for us. And he can't resist reminding us of the importance of God's word. So look at verse 4. He says, For whatever was written in the past, he's talking about that verse in Psalm 69, but also all of the Old Testament, all of it was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. See, this living a selfless Christian life business is really, really hard. It's much easier to throw it in and live to please myself. It's much easier to just live in a worldly way, living for myself than living a life of service, pleasing others, building them up in Christ. So if we're going to do it, if we're going to endure, if we're going to keep that hope in the gospel, we need the scriptures. We need to keep turning to God's word for encouragement. That is what changes us. That's what challenges us. That's what sometimes rebukes us and always encourages us so that we can follow the example of Christ. And more than that, We need God's work in us to help us do it. That's why verses 5 and 6 are a prayer asking God for help. Look at verse 5. He says, Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another according to the command of Christ Jesus. So that is, it's a prayer that God would work in us, this group of people here, to give us that harmony that God would help us to be unified, that God would create in us that attitude that looks to other people's good rather than to what I want because that's what Jesus wants from us, his people. And so the result will be, look at verse 6, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. That's the end goal. This is why we have to avoid foolish disputes. This is why if you are out of fellowship with someone in this room, you need to go and speak to them about it and repair the relationship. This is why we have to be willing to give up our rights for the good of others. It's not just about their good and our good. It's about God and his glory. See, from the very beginning, God's plan for the world, God's promise has always been that he would bring one people together to glorify him these promises were not just for the jews but they included the gentiles as well that's what all those quotes from the old testament are about look there in verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 11 and verse 12 he just builds them up one on top of each other they're quotes from the psalms they're quotes from deuteronomy they're quotes from isaiah 
that prophesied about God's plan for his creation. And that plan is that he would send his king, Jesus Christ, and he would bring together one people who would live to worship him. That is God's plan for a united people brought together across everything that divides by our common faith in the king, Jesus. And so he makes the point one last time for the slow learners in verse 7. He says, therefore, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. So do you understand this? Our unity around the gospel, when we come together, despite all our differences, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, extrovert and introvert, traditionalist and hipster, whatever other things divide modern churches, when we come together because of our common faith in Jesus, and when we together, with a united mind and one voice, declare the praises of God, that declares to the world out there the glory of God. That's why it's so important. When we divide, it's not just about us, it's dishonouring to God. But remember this, we are not unified just for unity's sake. Our unity is because of our common faith in Christ and our trust in him. So sometimes our unity does need to be broken. See, sometimes when people turn aside from the gospel that unites us, we need to break our unity. When people refuse to submit to the plain teaching of God's word, we need to break our unity. When people refuse to repent of ungodliness, sometimes we break our unity, but we do it reluctantly. And we do it as a last resort and always with sadness. But when our unity is broken because I'm selfish, or when our unity is broken because you are selfish, because you demand or I demand that everything should be done my way, that things should just suit me because I'm not willing to give up my rights or my freedoms for your good, that is more than sad. That dishonours the God who unites us. That dishonours the Lord who died for us. But when we are united despite our differences, that is the most wonderful thing. Because it says God alone, through Christ alone, can bring together one people across all differences, united under him. And that declares to our world the glory of God in the most profound way. As we close, just look again at verse 2, at the very simple but very challenging call of this passage. Uh, There's always a challenge with a passage like this that we apply it to others. So we sit here and we hear this and say, yeah, that person over there needs to hear this. And that person over there needs to learn to accept me or whatever it is. Do you notice how he doesn't let you do that? Look at verse 2. He says, each one of us, that's you. Just in case you're wondering, that's you mentioned in the Bible. And it's me as well. Each one of us, that's every person in this room, as in singular, you and me, each one of us must please his neighbour. If you want to know who that is, look around you again. That's these people here. This is very personal and pertinent. It is saying you work out how to do what is best for these other people gathered here in this church. Each one of us must please his neighbour for his good to build him up. 
for even the Messiah did not please himself. That is your calling. If you are a member of this church or any church for that matter, that is your calling. And I think we need God's help to do it.